What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Graham. Today, we're joined by Dan Held to discuss a recent piece he wrote called Quantum Narratives, The Rise and Fall of Cryptocurrencies. We'll also be talking a little bit about his unique writing process, hodlers as revolutionaries, gold 2.0, and how Bitcoin permits social freedom. Stick around. It's a good one. But first, let's check out what's going on in the news. Last week, the Bitcoin price broke $8,000 for the first time since July 2018. While it's fluctuated a bit since then, the price has hovered around the milestone ever since. 8BTC, a Chinese cryptocurrency news site, published a story evaluating the potential factors behind the recent price rally. The article identified recent moves into crypto by legacy institutions such as Facebook and JP Morgan, the US-China trade war, and classic FOMO, all as potential factors driving up the price. While price milestones always grab headlines, Blockstream's efforts to develop Bitcoin's second layer took a leap recently as well. The Bitcoin and blockchain technology company has announced that Liquid Securities, a platform for issuing and managing security tokens on its Liquid sidechain, is ready to go live. Liquid is an auxiliary network built on Bitcoin designed to enable faster, cheaper transfers between exchanges. Liquid Securities allows groups to issue security tokens that leverage the Bitcoin blockchain and choose from a variety of issuer controls. As a Bitcoin-focused company, it's encouraging but not totally surprising when Blockstream launches a new BTC initiative. But when a legacy tech institution like Microsoft builds directly on Bitcoin, that is something else entirely. According to an announcement on May 13th, Microsoft's Project Ion plans to leverage the Bitcoin blockchain to create a trustless digital identity scheme with the hopes of making usernames obsolete. Instead of logging into Facebook, email, or another application with a username, Users will be able to use a Digital Decentralized ID, or DID, which essentially acts like a private key to prove ownership. While Microsoft has been developing the technology, it is an open source project, and anyone can run a node. Additionally, the tech giant won't charge a fee for service. Speaking of your identity, the CFTC will need it if you're going to collect its crypto scam whistleblower rewards. At this year's consensus conference, CFTC agency reps had a booth and flyers warning, quote, Be on the lookout for virtual currency fraud, and if you see it, let us know, end quote. But what is a scam these days? The CFTC website lists textbook scam behavior like pump-and-dump schemes, wash or insider trading, unregistered derivatives platforms, and creating or reporting fake trading by cryptocurrency exchanges. But there's an incentive. Anyone whose whistleblow ends in more than $1 million sanctions against a scam are entitled to 10 to 30% of the monetary penalty. The catch is, the feds will need to know everything about you, your lawyer, and the scam you're reporting. ICO scams aside, Bitcoin is making another mainstream breakthrough. Major retailers, including Whole Foods, Nordstrom, Regal Cinemas, GameStop, and Baskin-Robbins now accept Bitcoin. Kind of. The breakthrough comes less from big box retailers and more from the app Spedden. That's S-P-E-D-N. Get it? Created by the payment platform Flexa in partnership with the cryptocurrency exchange Gemini, Spedden creates QR codes at checkout, then pays out the merchant in fiat and debits the user's wallet. Sound familiar? For end users, it's not really clear how Spedden provides anything different from what Bitcoin payment providers like FoldApp and BitPay have been doing for years. But grabbing the attention from giants like these is a good sign that the mainstream is warming up to Bitcoin. Currently, Spedden accepts Bitcoin, Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, and the stablecoin Gemini Dollar. 
Dan Held is the co-founder and director of business development at Interchange, a portfolio tool for institutional crypto traders and investors. Before that, he worked at Uber on writer growth and global data. But today, we're talking to Dan about his stint as a writer of rhetorical or explainer essays about Bitcoin. Hey, Dan. I read your quantum narrative essay, and you're about to publish another essay about Bitcoin security. Have you always been a writer, or is this something that started with your interest in Bitcoin? I uh, didn't actually, I never wrote an article until around like September 2018. And uh, I never, I've never written long form before that. I wrote my first article uh, in Bitcoin, or I wrote my first article about Bitcoin in September 2018. And it was an article called Hodlers are the Revolutionaries. And the reason I wrote it was the amount of uh, intellectual dishonesty in the crypto space is astronomical. Just the complete lack of data-driven thinking, using basic primitive mental models, and one that particularly annoyed me and actually got, uh, actually frustrated me so much that I started to write was the idea that hodlers are free riders, um, which rubbed me very much the wrong way. And I, I had to go read as much as I could about it and write a comprehensive rebuttal to that argument. And that's where I started to write. And once I started writing, all this frustration around these, frankly, just really poor, poorly constructed narratives, but had high meme mobility, for example, proof of work is wasteful. I, I wanted to comprehensively take down each piece of FUD about Bitcoin that I felt was rooted in, I don't know, just very, very poor thinking. Can you briefly explain your essay, Hodlers Are the Revolutionaries? Yes. So uh, a hodler is a, a Bitcoin hodler, someone who buys Bitcoin and hodls it because they, they choose to reduce their time preference and invest in something risky um, with the idea that they can preserve their wealth in something that is extremely hard to seize and they can transact or send that wealth to anyone else in an, in an immutable manner. Uh, hodlers play an incredibly important part of the ecosystem because Bitcoin is a social contract. Yes, the code is sort of enables that social contract, but that social contract is amongst all of the holders, the believers, the, the individuals who chose to take risk and invest in Bitcoin. If Bitcoin had stayed at a dollar, then we wouldn't have the amount of hash power behind it. We wouldn't have the developers. We wouldn't have uh, the network effect. Uh, the holders or the believers in the new financial system are the entirety of why we're here today. And they play one of the most critical roles. In fact, they breathe life into the Bitcoin protocol. So how do you normally go about writing something like that? Like, what's your process? Yeah, <laughs> great question. I, uh, you know, didn't really know what the hell I was doing. Um, but of course, you know, I've, I've worked at companies that to write some long form content, at least internally. Uh, I, I started with the way that narratives are constructed at Uber. So I spent two years at Uber in between my early days in the crypto space. And uh, that, you know, and then I rejoined back in late 2017. I took the techniques internally employed at Uber, which were around brevity, concise, you know, really tight narratives. Um, every single time you send an email to multiple people at Uber or your superior or people above them, you would have to write a TLDR in the email, which is the too long didn't read. And so I tried to use that with all of my content. I typically try to keep it between eight to 15 minutes, um, understanding that people have a very short attention. I also take that content and then reformulate it for Twitter. So starting with that basic construct of, construct of keeping it brief uh, is really hard to do. You have to really slice and really cut out things that you think add color, which they do. 
but for at the expense of attention. Um, and the way that I compile the data is I usually start with, I usually start by reading um, all the different Bitcoiners who've come before me and a lot of their content that they've, they've written, uh, which is usually, usually in Medium or Twitter form. And then I take that, I put that together in a doc, uh, straight copy pasted, and then I clean that up to where I'll keep the quotes I want to keep and then I add uh, additional context in between, I restructure it. I spend a lot of time on structure in terms of flow. I want to make sure that the pathway or at least my rationale through the piece is somewhat cohesive to where it starts from something very, very simple and leads to the ultimate sort of um, narrative I want to get across. I also write in layman's terms. Uh, I'm not here to win a Nobel Peace Prize or to get a you know Pulitzer or whatever. I'm, I'm here to get the point across. And so I'm going to take every single effort to make sure everyone can understand my content, which increases its, at least it, it increases the number of people that will be moved or think think about uh, the narrative I'm, I'm proposing. And then it, as well, it'll increase the propagation of that narrative to many more people. It's pretty clear you're thinking about the reader's experience when you write your essays. You also add some interesting audio touches. What's your content strategy? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, I the way that I think about my writing is a growth marketer or growth product sort of mindset, which is how do I increase my propagation and then how do I increase my conversion rate when people read the piece? So that's what I, those are my objectives. Um, so I, whether it be the graphic image, the title of the piece, the simplicity of the narrative, those are everything I, I try to keep in consideration in terms of propagation and conversion. Um, you know, when it comes to different channels, I want to optimize, you know, I, I realize that I'm not a big podcaster. Like I like some podcasts, but I'm not, you know, I'm not listening to 20 podcasts a week, but a lot of people prefer to ingest information that way. And I should reformulate my content for them. As similarly, I take my long form, I turn it into one pagers for Facebook and LinkedIn, and then I turn it into a tweet storm on Twitter. So mm -hmm. I want to make sure that no matter what channel people absorb information through, that I'm propagating my narrative that's digestible for that channel. And then finally, you know, around the music that I, <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, I'm the only person probably on Medium or for that matter, almost any blog I've ever read that scores the article. So I've been listening to ambient techno for almost, almost 20 years now, uh, where I ported my old iTunes playlist. It started at, started with MP3s through torrenting and then iTunes playlist and then Spotify uh, and it's my oldest playlist and it's essentially started with game and movie soundtrack. Um, and then the genre actually kind of took off with Tycho. Tycho was yeah. kind of popularized the movement. And so when I listen to that music, I feel the, the feelings that I, that I have are moments. I, I kind of see moments or I feel certain feelings with it. So I score the article based on feelings or based on a soundtrack, I think matches the tone and feel of the piece. And I think that's most, you know, eloquently captured in my seasons article, which is part two of the planting Bitcoin series. It, it's very intense, um, which, which was the entirety of why I did that because it's the 2008 financial crisis. And I think people forget how daunting or like how scary of a moment that was. And so I, I feel like music can really play a critical part in getting that point across. Um, my next article that's coming out has some kind of more meandering questioning feel to it, which is, hey, we're exploring this idea. How should we, you know, this is an exploratory exercise. We're not exactly sure, but 
let's we're, we're trying to find our path we're trying to find we're trying to find what might happen so it's more of an exploratory feel let's take a step back and talk about another article you recently wrote quantum narratives what do you think are the important narratives around bitcoin yeah so nick carter and i forget who else he worked with on this came up with uh, kind of a generalized you know little heat map of or flow of narratives over time you know bitcoin's had many different narratives from uh, dark web money to, you know, like e-cash, um, you know, like a cheap coffee payments, cheap PayPal merchant, merchant sort of narratives. Uh, but I think the one that's continuous from the beginning and also reflects Bitcoin's protocol market fit, which is a play on product market fit, is Gold 2.0, um, which I have an extensive tweet storm that covers comprehensively why that's the case. Um, a few off the top of my head is just, just Satoshi references Bitcoin Bitcoin. He makes he makes an analogy that Bitcoin is like precious metals four times. Um, a twenty one million hard cap clearly indicates that he considers it initially like more of a store of value. Um, he talks about supply shocks bringing in greater and greater waves of adherents or believers. Um, you know, in the first message in the blockchain, he didn't say Visa is on the verge of raising processing fees. He said, you know, UK chunks are on the bail- second bailout for banks. Um, in, in addition, the first pair, the first written message that he has after the white paper uh, clearly indicates that he goes, you know, the root of all of all of our problems start with central banks. Um, in addition to that, you've got, you know, other other things here where um, Satoshi said, I had to code it all up first before I wrote the white paper to make sure it could work. Well, a lot of the code indicates that it's a goal 2.0. The white paper is simply a marketing message, which any good marketer would know. It's a marketing message for the cypherpunks who don't give a shit about, you know, gold. They don't really, I mean, maybe Nick Zabo did, but not many of them care about gold or monetary policy. They wanted privacy and irreversibility or finality of their payments. That's what the cypherpunks cared about. And that's what Satoshi gave them in his marketing message in the white paper. I think it was Grayscale who recently came out with an ad where they were lugging around these huge bags of gold and their tagline is essentially the gold 2.0 narrative. Can you explain how Bitcoin is gold 2.0? So money, you know, different monies are kind of like different species of money. They have certain genetic code that endow them with certain uh, traits or you know, uh, characteristics as money. Um, and those traits are like fungibility, divisibility, immutability, transferability, et cetera. And Bitcoin has superior genetic code, which manifests itself into a form of superior traits, making it the apex predator of money. And ultimately, as we've seen through, um, <laughs> as we've seen through evolution, the older species typically die out. And I'd, I don't think you know, gold has one advantage over Bitcoin, which is that it has the longer shared collective uh, illusion of value or shared belief. But the younger generation, I think, is pretty much, you know, the millennials and younger are buying into Bitcoin. Um, and I think we'll see in, a new, in another financial crisis that you can't really trust gold. Uh, it, it leads to centralization risk where people, are, people store gold together and they store it in bigger vaults that can be easily seized. Uh, whereas Bitcoin sees ability is extremely difficult, um, especially even, even if you put all the Bitcoins together in a centralized manner, like a custodial account, even then they can have their private key, you know, essentially like a multi-sig arrangement where it would require five different people from five different nationalities to be coerced. Um, so I, I think gold is a relic. It's, it's, uh, 
I haven't seen a good argument from gold bugs. They're typically very primitive in their thinking. And, you know, if you're at all futurist, we're not going to be taking gold on spacecraft. There are all these different kinds of Bitcoin subcultures. Where do you fit in? Yeah, I would say between like a cypherpunk and an Austrian. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm from Texas originally. So being libertarian, you know, like a libertarian Austrian cypherpunk, uh, you know, not a lot of Texans are very technical. So <laughs> uh, very technical or really believed in Bitcoin back and back when I started to believe in it. So, you know, I'm a mixture of, yeah, Austri like Austrian School of Economics, libertarian plus cypherpunk, which largely overlap quite a bit. Yeah, I, I guess I just like Texan actually probably works in this space for, for, <laughs> for you know, like your identification in like a, a Bitcoin subculture. I don't know. I read one that was like uh, Xeno cypherpunk feminists or something like that. And I was like, I don't know what the hell that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, Texans are kind of conservative with some things. That's yeah. why I'm libertarian. Look, I, I believe in freedom. That's the core root of everything that I believe in whether that be social freedom or monetary freedom. And I think Bitcoin is our best shot at enabling both. Yeah, um, can, you, can you sort of elaborate on, on the social aspect of that? Yeah, so when more pow powerful adversaries than you have extreme difficulty in seizing your money, which money isn't just numbers, money is stored energy and time that you've spent to earn it. When, it, when a more powerful adversary has difficulty seizing that from you, it changes the power dynamic of, of the whole world. And that, that bleeds into the social aspect as well. Before you might have social freedoms, but no monetary freedoms, or before you might have um, no social freedoms, but monetary freedom, and it doesn't really mean a lot in the unless you're free with both. And so I think Bitcoin gives us our best shot at individuals taking sovereignty over uh, I would say the most important part of their body, which is their stored energy and time, their cumulative stored energy and time, the money, the output of it. It's really a compression of all of your hours that you spent blood, sweat, and tears earning that money, whether it be at a coffee shop or backbreaking labor in a forest or anything else. And so I think uh, that through that, governments will have less money to fund wars. Capital will be allocated more efficiently, which le le leads to a better life. Um, and when it comes to social freedoms, people will be, it'll be very hard to take those away from you when they can't take away your money, because if they try to take away your social freedoms, you can abstain from participating in that government. One of the newest narratives right now is that Bitcoin is an uncorrelated asset. What does that mean? Yeah. So this one's kind of fun because it doesn't require any belief in Bitcoin itself. Uh, asset managers don't really you know, they allocate, say, if you're a sovereign wealth fund and you have to allocate a trillion dollars, well, no individual person at that fund is going to totally understand each niche market of distressed real estate assets, U.S. equities, German equities, German bonds, etc. And so what they do is, is according to modern portfolio theory, you, you construct a portfolio of different assets that are uncorrelated. Uh, which gives you essentially the TLDR is it's better performance and less risk because the assets are uncorrelated. You're not subject to, let's say, if you were solely allocated in U.S. real estate in the 2008 financial crisis or real estate as a whole, you would have done very poorly. Um, and so you're essentially allocating capital across multiple asset classes to better manage your risk and, and have a higher performance. And so with Bitcoin, it's uncorrelated with almost any other asset class. It, its return has been phenomenal 
it is the best return, <laughs> is the best investment anyone's ever made. Also, if you look at Bitcoin's return since, uh, if you look at Bitcoin's return since exchange listing, it actually beats out every other cryptocurrency by a couple of magnitudes. Yeah, people don't look at that. They just look at from 2016 to 2018 and I'm, or 2019. I'm like, well, that's bullshit. You're cherry picking three years of like a giant bull cycle. Um, how about the 2014 alt, alt boom? Like if you wanted to be data driven, you would include the oldest set of altcoins and the largest, you know, good sample size as well, which is the 2014 boom. Uh, but no one does that, of course. You want to cherry pick a narrative and certainly people go, well, that's not fair. Bitcoin has been around for longer and that's a very valid concern. I would be happy to come together on a conclusion, except they, they start at one extreme and I'm like, sure, well, let's choose another and it's somewhere in between. And so, you know, when they allocate capital across multiple asset classes, if if they allocate a very minuscule percentage percentage of their portfolio, which they honestly would be, would be negligent if they didn't, um, if they allocate a tiny percent, we're talking like 0.05 <laughs> of all the institutional money in the world. If they do that, Bitcoin's going to like a hundred thousand or a million dollars a coin. And so that narrative I think is very potent for the institutional side. I think Bitcoin is the best positioned asset for institutions. They can understand gold 2.0. Um, Ethereum's narrative has never really been concrete. Uh, they started with world computer, then pivoted to DeFi, dApps, and now they're trying to pivot back to like DeFi somehow enables a better store of value. I, I don't really understand how they can possibly do that. And neither do they have the social construct or the code to enable that. So what makes all these narratives quantum narratives? Uh, with quantum mechanics, there's a classic thought, thought experiment called Schrodinger's cat, which is that, you know, if there's a cat in a box with, with a radioactive material, that the cat is both alive and dead until the observer or an external observer observes it in, in that state. And then upon that observation, uh, essentially, there's, a, there's like uh, multiple states that the cat can be in, but upon observation, those states collapse into one reality. And so I felt that was a good analogy for crypto and narratives because largely all most of these cryptos are alive because of narratives, including Bitcoin. Um, it's the shared cohesive glue that brings everyone together. In in you know for Ethereum that was DeFi, World Computer, everything else. For Bitcoin it's payments and Gold 2.0. And luckily Bitcoin's cohesiveness and, and um, you know integrity of the narrative has maintained intact. And the ones that didn't believe that forked off into Bcash um, and, and subsequently got crushed. Um, you know, it, the continuity of the narrative is important. And so, you know, we, we saw the, the frothiness of these narratives really peak. And that's where the, the video I have at the end uh, really shows that is the rise and fall of, of narratives. So it's, you've got all this, you've got all these narratives ebbing and flowing in this, you know, in this state that isn't critically observed. But the bear market is the critical observation that we need. And so all of these narratives, whether it be privacy coins, more scalable blockchains, DeFi, dApps, world computer, all of these are ebbing and flowing until they're critically observed and then they, and then they collapse upon reality. And so, you know, I wanted to touch on what narratives have ebbed and flowed and then as well, what's the real narrative that's still there? And to, you know, none of us are using dApps. Um, DeFi is largely just going long levered Ethereum, which I don't consider that exactly a great innovation. Um, and, and it's also on a shaky foundation. Um, so 
I think one of the only remaining narratives is bestore value. And <laughs> it's crazy, you know, you just apply a basic product mindset to the crypto space and you go, well, what protocols have protocol market fit? What narratives will survive this, you know, wave function collapse when things are critically observed? And it's hard not to see, you know, Bitcoin and I think, you know, Litecoin is a store of value narrative essentially, but they, they kind of highlight the payments narrative, but really store of value is the only thing that works here. like this episode, we'll be having Dan back soon to discuss his new article on Bitcoin security. The Bitcoin Magazine podcast is a BTC media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. Today's episode was produced and edited by myself and Dave. Stories this episode come from articles written by Bitcoin Magazine staff, including Peter Chihuahua, Colin Harper, Jimmy O'Kee, Landon Manning, and Aaron Van Weerdum. Theme music provided by Billy Sly from the Crypto Cantina. A very special thanks to our guest, Dan Held. And of course, Satoshi Nakamoto. We are eternally grateful. Visit BitcoinMagazine.com for more in-depth news, analysis, and resources about the most successful peer-to-peer currency. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, at Bitcoin Magazine, for all the latest news and articles. You can find more engaging crypto podcasts over at Let'sTalkBitcoin.com. And you can follow them on Twitter, at the LTB Network, for all the latest episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the show on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcast. And if you got the time, please leave us a review. It really helps us improve the show and reach new listeners. Thanks for tuning in, guys. And until next time, hold on.